sometimes I get a good feeling, yeah. Yeah. I get a feeling that I never, 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 never had before, no, no. That was the great Essa James singing Something's Got a Hold on Me. This week we have an audio interview with Etta from 1978 by Cliff White on the Rocks Back Pages podcast. I am your co-host Barney Hoskins. This is Mark Pringle sitting beside me. Hello, Barney. Hello again, Mark. Uh, so we'll be going to be talking about Etta, who we both adore, one of the, the great soul singers, the great rocking soul singers. We're going to have uh, an excerpt from... Uh, a couple of excerpts from this audio coming up shortly. But just, Mark... Give me a little lowdown on Essa James and what she meant to you. Well, I mean, I sort of did. I come to her late. I don't know. She, you know, I was already listening to Aretha. I was listening to Gladys Knight and so on before I really sort of came to Essa James. First of all, I think she's a singer of astonishing power. Um, at a time when a lot of the women singers in American R and B were kind of. E- Often quite slight. You're talking because she started what was it? That was 1958, 59, sort of uh, b- even before then, possibly. And she just sounded like a force of nature in a way that was very rare in popular music at the time. Um, uh, and then she, despite her m- multitude of personal problems, including serious heroin addiction for many years, she actually had a remarkably long career. She spanned distinctly different epochs of American rhythm and blues, going right back to almost the doo-wop days, uh, through to sort of specterish large production, pop soul, through to muscle shoals... Deep Southern Soul. Deep Southern Soul, which is an extraordinary span. And um, I just think she's marvellous. Just just love her. I think she's marvellous too. I was lucky enough to interview her a couple of times, once in the mid-80s, I think again in the early 90s mm-hmm. in Montreux when she was um, performing at the festival, uh, the jazz festival. She was, among other things, an extraordinary performer, just so kind of ballsy and charismatic. This extraordinary, uh, powerful contralto voice, she was a huge influence on everyone from Janis Joplin to Adele. Very. I'm sure Adele's talked about, about Etta. Um, but you're right to point out that she sort of falls outside the obvious kind of pigeonhole. Yeah. She's, she spans all of it. I mean, she finished up as this sort of matriarch of the blues, yes. didn't she? But she also did an album of Billie Holiday songs. That's right. You know, so she, she sort of was interested in all of it. I mean, she, she kind of, she says in the interview, she sort of identifies as Billie Holiday in, in that some of their life choices were dissimilar. I mean, the other thing is, again, in the interview, she, she talks about sort of starting off as basically a member of a girl group. I think they're called The Peaches or something like that. And, yeah. and uh, her first, with a clip you're going to hear in a second, is uh, to her talking about Roll With Me Henry, her answer record to Hank Ballard and the Midnighters work with me, Annie. So that was sort of in that sort of area of late 50s R&B. And as I said earlier, is, is then she talks also about the joy of chess records, where she's given an enormous amount of freedom, but where Leonard Chess, who 
ripped her off ruthlessly, but she really regarded highly as a producer, was very hands-on, but gave her an enormous amount of freedom. And suddenly she's doing stuff with strings at last, all of those great, great, huge ballads that she really sort of like made her own at the time. And yeah, no, she's just marvellous singer. I was going to ask you, what did you make of her as a person when you met her? I liked her enormously. Um, yeah. I liked her enormously. The first time I spoke to her was after a set she did at Dingwalls in London. Um, you know, small club. Yeah. Uh, and at that point, this would have been kind of 1984-ish. Right. She wasn't someone who could play venues much larger than, than Dingwalls in London. And she'd probably come over once a year to do that. She says in interviews she likes playing those places. Well, she had just... The day before this interview that yeah. Cliff White did, she had just played Dingwalls. Exa- so exactly. Boss Goodman, who booked uh, Dingwalls, I mean, I think he was a huge fan of hers and, yeah. and made sure he got her over at least once a year. What, so you talked about um, the... the the early years for her and rolling the Henry, um, also known as Wallflower, yep. her first really big hit. So why don't we hear Etta talking in 1978 to Cliff White about those early days with the yep. Peaches. We had we had let uh, Hank Ballard and the Midnighters. They had came they had came to Los San Francisco. Um, for a record hop, and uh, the uh, the oldest girl was a real eager beaver kind of a chicken, and a groupie too. See, and so she would always go around to those groups and things. And her way of getting in would be saying, "Hey, we got a group we want you to listen to." And uh, so when Hank Ballard and them came, we went up to their hotel and sang the song for them. They liked it, but quite naturally they couldn't do anything about it. They were a group, so. Uh, that's the same way that she, she did Johnny Otis. I see. Matter of fact, we did the song for the chords. Do you remember the chords? I, yes, I do. Shaboom? Yes, I do. And I remember that, yeah. I just now remember that over after 24 years. We did it for them first. Because like I said, she was a real extreme groupie. She really wanted to get those guys, you know. And and she liked them. And she she took us up to see them. And we were so young. We were, you know, we weren't fooling around yet. And we were still wearing bobby socks and blue jeans and ponytails and things. And she was really out there, you know. And uh, we sang it for them. And then about a week later, uh, the Midnighters came in and we sang it for them. And then Johnny came. So, you know. But the Midnighters had already had their hit with... Uh, with yeah. yeah, we called ourselves going up there showing them that we had an answer to their song. Right, right. Which we really never thought that was going to, you know... We just thought it was something. We were just singing something, you know. But uh, but it certainly did. It took off yeah. almost immediately, didn't right. it? Right. But then it got covered and uh, you, you got swamped. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, I got swamped with uh, them banding it off mine off the air, you know, in the United States because um, mine said roll. Mm. Can you imagine banding a record for saying roll? And then Georgia Gibbs took it and she sold about four million copies because she said rock with me and dance with me and everything else but roll and she did it, you know. That was Ellis James talking about how she basically went to uh, audition a song, first of all to Hank Ballard, who the song was an answer to, and then to other artists, ultimately ending up auditioning to Johnny Otis, who signed her, recorded her, released it. Treated her badly, ripped her off, and etc., etc. But this is like 
her very first step in the music business, going to bands, hotel rooms or backstage and with her two pals singing the song. One of the girls in her group, it's, it's, I, she leads to is basically a groupie and it's, 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 there's all that sort of side of things. Anyway, so that, that, that was Etta. Yeah, and then probably our, I would say my and possibly your favourite kind of Etta period is that period when Chess took a bunch yeah. of artists down to the Fame Studios in Muscle Shoals um, and where Etta made, you know, probably a, her best known, uh, or some of her best known tracks. Yeah. The Harrowing, I'd Rather Go Blind, also known as Blind Girl. Tell Mama, the, the, the yeah. incredibly funky Tell Mama. She did a version of Otis Redding's Security. And she talks in the interview with Cliff about how she bonded with Rick Hall, this white southerner uh, who ran this studio. Uh, she loved Rick. I remember t- her telling me that, that they had something in common. They were both sort of survivors of fairly uh, harrowing childhoods. Uh-huh. Um, and she described him as a, as, a, as a sort of teetotal alcoholic. And she herself had, was grappling with her problems with heroin. So, uh, you know, these, these quite unlikely Absolutely. Two people really she, did bond musically. She also says in an interview that actually one of the things she liked about Rick was that he reined her in in a way that previous producers hadn't, and he would want her to sing a song in a very specific way. He really produced her as a singer. Now, whilst she enjoyed the freedom that Leonard Chess gave her, she actually liked being produced as a singer. Uh, yeah, and that's that's really just an interesting. Thing. Well, you couldn't really work with Rick Hall uh, if you were not prepared yeah. to do a lot of takes for a song you know he really was a perfectionist and it's one of the reasons those you know early to mid 60s Muscle Shoals fame recordings are so great Mm. because they they're I mean, they're incredibly soulful and sensual, but they are disciplined arrangements and performances. And um, I think she really loved that. So that's that to James. Moving on to the free offerings on the homepage this week. The featured act is Royal Trucks, who recently announced um, a a proper kind of reunion next year. A new record's going to be coming out. Um, I believe on Fat Possum, so we have we have three pieces, including one by Simon Reynolds that I believe I actually commissioned for Mojo. But there's an early piece uh, by Ian Christ for Alternative Press, and then bringing the story up to date, there's quite a long interview that Neil Kulkarni did for the Quietus with uh, Neil and Jennifer of, of Royal Trucks. And you know, um, while I've never been entirely convinced by them musically, I do think they're very interesting. Band and Neil came out of Pussy Galore. They were part of, of this trend, if you like, or uh, a, a sort of a group of people who who really kind of worshipped the Rolling Stones, worshipped Exile on Main right. Street, but sort of gave it this kind of intellectual postmodern twist. So they kind of embraced <laughs> this sort of sensual debauchery of what the Stones stood for in that era, but gave it this kind of alternative yeah. rock edge. I, I mean, this is a band who sort of passed me by. A lot of bands have passed me by. And this is one of them. And you were playing a snatch. That I didn't realise about the Pussy Galore link, so I'm a big John Spencer mm. fan. And you played a snatch of their stuff in the office a couple of days ago, and I was really instantly, my, my, my ears pricked up. So I'm going to investigate. Yeah, Rolling I think Trucks. what we were playing was the, was the, uh, the Twin Infinitives album, which, which is, is certainly not easy on the ear. It's quite experimental. It's quite far out there. It's an acquired taste. They are beloved of writers on The Wire. We have a big Edwin Pouncey piece um, from The Wire on Royal Trucks. So they kind of... 
um, they appeal to people who like their stonesy raunch, but also uh, like that that quite kind of impenetrable art rock stance. You know, they span that that kind of gulf. I think I'd rather like the impenetrable art rock. Stance. I think you like the more <laughs> impenetrable stuff. So, so that's Royal Trucks for you. Back next year on on um, on Fat Possum. And then our featured writer this week is the late Rob Partridge, who died almost exactly 10 years ago. And uh, Rob wrote for Melody Maker before becoming, you know, one of the great and certainly most respected and beloved publicists um, in London. Uh, He was head of Press Island with Neil Storey, and then they co-founded Coalition Press. I mean, I knew Rob, as many writers of my vintage did, um, at Island. We'd all go round to St. Peter's Square, not far from where we're sitting right now. Absolutely. Um, Chiswick, or Stamford Brook, to be absolutely accurate, where Island was housed in this beautiful Georgian um, building and we'd all go around and, and leave with sort of fistfuls of, of John Cale and uh, Tom <laughs> Waits albums and you know Rob Rob was a really good writer on, on, on Melody Maker um, I, I knew him particularly well from doing pieces on Tom Waits I did two Tom Waits features uh, with, with Rob essentially arranging that and kind of hovering in the background also you too so you know um and he was just a lovely man everyone adored him the pieces we've got a sort of rather unholy american trinity of professor longhair the great new orleans uh, pianist and sort of grandfather of that of that scene with his shuffling hungarians mm-hmm. as early as the late 30s Fess, as he was nicknamed, influenced everybody. So this is this is an interview with with Professor Longhair. Um, th- we also then have very differently, probably polar opposite to Professor Longhair, uh, 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 an article on um, uh, Jabriath, or rather with Jabriath, <laughs> or rather with Jabriath's manager Jerry Brandt. Now Jabriath is a fascinating character because he really was the first out gay star in America. Uh, Probably why he didn't become a huge star. Jerry Brandt is convinced in this interview from 74 um, that Jabrath is going to kind of wipe the floor with David Bowie Mm -hmm. and making these outlandish claims for him. Um, And and, and the reason that Rob doesn't talk to Jabrath at this point is uh, that Jerry is, is absolutely adamant that Jabrath is now too important to actually do interviews. Um, <laughs> that worked, didn't Yes, it? <laughs> that worked, that worked, as did the ginormous billboard that he paid for in Times That's Square. That's right, I forgot um, about that. So, Jabrath, I mean, you know, Jabrath has his fans. I think Morrissey is a fan. Lots of people love Jabrath. A, because his music actually really isn't bad. B, because he was pretty bold. He mm-hmm. was pretty bold for the for, for the for the times, you know. America, you know, it really was not ready for an, an out and proud star. The final piece by Rob is a conversation with Tammy Wanet <laughs> um, about, among other things, women's liberation. So this is just not long after "Stand by Your Man" became a huge hit. Um, that sort of uh, one might say anti-feminist mm-hmm. anthem. So Rob asks her about women's lib. Uh, and also asks her why truckers like her music so much. <laughs> um, so, so um, 
you know, this is in memory of Rob Partridge. I still remember his his funeral at Golders Green Crematorium, and um, it says a lot. Not only were you two there, I were like three pews in front of me, the four members of of you two, or the backs of their heads. But Tom Waits and Kathleen, his wife, had flown all the way from Fantas- California to be there, and one of the songs played during the service was uh, a beautiful song by Tom called Take It With Me, which had us all all, all welling up. So thank you, Rob. Um, you're not forgotten. And I'm now going to turn this over to you, Mark, to tell us about some of the pieces that have found their way into the Rock's Pages Library this week. OK, uh, well, we're going to start off in 1962, and our very first article on... Burl Ives to reach the rocks back pages of the library. Burl Ives is a sort of oddity for me because my father really didn't like music. My, I lived, grew up in a household full of books and um, a tiny record player and a handful of 78s, one of which is Burl Ives' Big Rock Candy Mountain. And the reason why my father liked that was because my father's a lifelong socialist, like liked any song which seemed to describe a worker's or hobo's paradise, which that song's all about. Um, this article is in the light of uh, Burleigh's recanting his previous harsh criticism to the beat scene. The beat scene. Now saying, saying now, the rowing about today's pop music is all greatly exaggerated. It's dance music, kids go for a thing, and it's not unlike what we, back in my youth, used to go for. Well, of course, Burl had a bit of a history of recanting because he famously sung like a canary to the House of Un-American Activities Committee in 1952, uh, which allowed him to carry on working as an avuncular fat pseudo-folky in both movies and television, uh, whilst the likes of Pete Seeger were blacklisted. And, and P- Pete Seeger virulently criticised, uh, and rightly so, Burl Ives for his actions. They did apparently sort of make up late in both their lives. But So that, that's, that's pretty interesting, because, like I said, he's got this history of recanting. Second piece, um, from 73... Mark Bolan interviewed by Andrew Bailey in Rolling Stone. And it's great just because it's Mark Bolan and he just does great interview. You know, he's as flamboyant in conversation as he was on stage. He says these things like, you know, um, in, in lieu of the fact that, that his audience in America, this is around the time he's trying to crack, as it's happened, unsuccessfully crack America. And, it, and he talked about the, uh, the girls in the audience. He said, we pick up in the US the ones who really want to screw me, not just fantasise. They want my balls and that's the difference. <laughs> and it's just like, you know, without putting on too much conceit, I've always been one of the trendsetters, right from being king of the mods at 13. I mean, that's Mark, you know. Uh, Ever uh, self-aggrandizing. <laughs> I mean, bless him. I mean, because you and I know that actually, this is 73, isn't yeah. it? That his, his star was already somewhat on the way. I mean, his peak years were 71, 72. Yeah. He did have one big American hit with well, Banger Gong, as it was called there. Yeah. Get it on as we knew it here. Um, and... You know, but you know clearly he still thinks in 1973 that he's going to be one of the sort of defining stars of the era, which in a way he is. But as Tony Visconti, his producer, once said to me, the problem with Mark is he was essentially a singles artist, yep. where David Bowie was an albums artist, and Mark just lacked the vision to understand um, the kind of things that Bowie understood uh, I, I, in I, terms of self reinvention and uh, and and. and Creating whole yeah. albums full of extraordinary songs. I mean, I, I love Mark without ever thinking as an artist of the stature of David Bowie because he didn't have that sort of hinterland which allowed him to 
really a producer, as you say, great albums, but but then can, as you, and again as you say, keep reinventing himself. Um, but huge fan. I mean, at a time when I was at school, when my group of my age group meant to look down on him, that he was glittery when we were all in sort of like serious rock inverse commas. There's, I remember when I first heard Wide or Rights, Ride or White Swan, which is his first his first T Rex hit. It was the first T Rex yes. hit, not the first Tyrannosaurus. No, no, Rex, absolutely. I've been yeah. absolutely knocked out by it. Um, uh, and, um, you know, a uh, fabulous man. Moving on about a decade, actually, um, over a decade, uh, 1988, um, in the Baltimore Evening Sun, Jeffrey Himes reviewing Willie Nelson Live. Now, I guess I'd seen Willie around maybe five years before, but it was certainly within that period with that same band and so on and so forth. And it'd been one of the great shows I'd ever seen at the Albert Hall. He played for about three and a half hours. And Jeffrey Himes, I've read a lot of live reviews of Willie Nelson. This is the first which actually seemed to be reviewing the same artist I saw. Um, and he says, uh, Nelson does mostly the same songs when he visits Merriweather, that's the venue in Baltimore, each summer. But he rearranges the songs so much that it seems like a new show each time. This year he took his own Bloody Mary Morning, for instance, and pushed the tempo and streamlined the melody so much that the song was barely recognisable. He then took off on a furious solo that explained the deep gouge in the guitar beneath the strings. And this, this is, I think, just a really magical piece of live reviewing, you know, where he's actually, he isn't, he may have preconceptions, but he's left them at the door and he's absolutely writing about the very show he's seeing on that night. Yeah. And it's terrific stuff. Well, you were playing some of that. Is it the Willie and the Family live album? Uh, yes. Or it was that. And I was, I'd not listened to it for years. It's great. And I was really astonished by it. Yeah. Um, and that just how sort of out there and fearless his guitar playing uh, is. Um, when, when, I saw, when I saw him at the Albert Hall with um, our colleague Martin Collier, um, you know, he's playing a gut string acoustic, it's not a steel string acoustic, it's a gut string acoustic, but through a, a combo amplifier, and it's like heavy metal Spanish guitar. I mean, he's loud. Mm. You know, he's really... And he's got great players, like you know, when I saw him at this show that Jeffrey Himes was reviewing, Grady Martin, who's the guitar player, and yeah. Patsy Cline's Crazy, and all of that sort of stuff, but a fabulous guitar player. All these good musicians, and Will is right in there and up there with all these good musicians, just as a guitar player, let alone as an interpreter. The other thing, again... Himes talks about and struck me when I saw him is that he comes almost more as a singer and as a musician he's as much out of the Bix Biederbeck um, white jazz tradition of the 30s as he is out of country music mm. um, Bing Crosby he's as close to Bing Crosby as a singer as he is to anyone else you, you know and that extraordinary behind the beat sort of approach it was. I saw a magical evening, and Jeffrey Himes is writing about exactly what I saw. I mean, Willie is someone. It's really worth going in, digging deep into his back catalogue. Yeah, I think. Yeah. So, you know, the great records he made in the seventies. You know, including records he made with Jerry Wexler, who mm. also produced Arthur James. Absolutely. So, you know, I, I mean, we 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 love Willie for so many reasons. Uh, Songwriter, politics, politics, <laughs> weed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But um, but he is you know he is extraordinary and I mean a phenomenal songwriter a, a great singer uh, someone whose influences are so diverse extraordinary guitar player and you know I I think it's it's worth getting past the the sort of cartoon idea mm. that that many people have of Willie Nelson I think that's right what's next yeah um, well I'm just going to briefly talk about uh, Michael Goldberg's report on 
John Fogarty's uh, winning his the self-plagiarism suit taken out against him by... What was the record? Saul's Ants. Saul's Ants and um, Fantasy, the Fantasy label. Uh, the idea that you'd sue a singer for self-plagiarism is almost beyond absurd. Um, it took the jury, it says in the piece, three hours to re- reach a verdict in John Fogarty's favour. But it's, it's the latest stage in a long-running feud between the two, Sulzantz and John Fogarty, uh, which involved all kinds of extraordinary claims and counterclaims. Um, uh, the Sulzantz and Fantasy Records come out of it, the whole story, so badly. It's just not, it's just not true. Um, so it's, just a, it's a short news report, but it's just a very interesting, interesting stuff. It's so surreal uh, that it makes David Geffen's lawsuit against Neil Young for making unrepresentative yes. music sound almost reasonable. <laughs> <laughs> that was a classic, wasn't it? Anyway, uh, g- jumping forward a few years, uh, we talked last week about trip-hop, I do believe. it Was it last week we talked about trip-hop? Well, a couple of weeks ago we talked about Massive Attack. Yeah, well, this is uh, uh, Stephen Dalton's review of Portishead's Dummy, which is their debut album. Um, I think I said it a couple of weeks ago that uh, I'm not desperately interested in this sort of thing, but Stephen Dalton spots it for what it is. Uh, He says, Portishead's post-ambient, timelessly organic blues are probably too left-field, introspective and downright Bristolian to grab short-term glory as some kind of next big thing. But remember what Radical Departure's Blue Lines, Ambient Works and Debut were for their times. And make sure you hear this unmissable album. This may not be the future, but it is a future. One where Portishead is a desolate but exquisitely beautiful place to visit. Actually, as it happens, Portishead's a dump if you ever go to Bristol. Uh, but uh, <laughs> well, um, And they were the, the next big thing for, uh, for, for more brief, than a moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. That, that album was absolutely mm. massive. Mm. A lot of people I know actually reckon that the next album is a better one. Of course, I didn't listen to the next album because I hated this album so much. It, every, for, to me, every single song sounds the same. It's the same gloomy descending chord change with... Beth Gibbon's angst smeared all over the top. You've got but to love a bit of ambient gloom, really, to, <laughs> do I? Do to, I really? to, to walk the streets of Portishead. <laughs> uh, and lastly, uh, again, Neil Kilcarney, the writer who, I, as has become clear, I rather like. Uh, and he's reviewing the Fugees live in 96 in London. They've played um, a small club, actually just around the corner from where I currently live, called uh, what well, was the Acklam Hall and is now sub- was then a subterranean. And um, even though the Fugees had, this is around they're promoting their second album. They had one previous album, and they were definitely on everyone's radar. But they weren't absolutely huge at this point. And Neil Kulkarni is already losing interest <laughs> um, um, uh, for reasons such as, for Christ's sakes, hip hop is anti-cover version. The only futurist pop extant. So what's with the old Roberta Flack and Bob Marley covers? Why the tepid Jamiroquai cousins of these new, in brackets, old beats? And, you know, it's, A, it's a very good point. But, of course, the, 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 the Killing Me Softly cover was one of their huge hits, wasn't it? It was actually the cover version was one of the things that propelled them from being a kind of interesting uh, second division kind of um, hip-hop act to a sort of serious R&B contenders. I think Neil's being terribly snobbish. Of course um, he is. You know, <laughs> uh, it's very much sort of in-crowd hip-hop connoisseur comments. Yeah. I mean, you know, is it a great record or not? I happen to think the score was a, was a pretty fantastic album. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, 
in in many respects, not not just because of Lauren Hill, but just the, the way they used beats and mm-hmm. hooks and licks, and I just thought it was tremendous. I still think it's one of the best hip hop um, albums, and I, and I and I just refuse to be snobbish about it. Fair I enough. Understand? Understand where it's coming from? I actually think the Miseducation of Lauren Hill is better than either of those records because kind of the R and B soul singer against plus hip hop contradiction I very rarely works and I don't think it des- desperately worked with the Fugees mm. and you, then you take her out of that to some extent to make her an, more of an out and out R&B artist and that felt like a better better mix to me but you know yeah I think they're both pretty great in terms of the later pieces the one probably I enjoyed most was a long William Shaw profile of the totally batty Julian Cope for The Word in 2003. So this is a piece as much about um, sort of megalithic ruins and his book, <laughs> The Modern Antiquarian, <laughs> as it is about sort of the teardrop, teardrop explodes or Ian McCulloch or anything like that. I mean, Cope is a sort of genuinely brilliant and, and, and eccentric fellow. Uh, and his accounts are sort of travelling the globe looking for sort of ruins and strange sort of plinths and all the sort of weird stuff that and not, and not novel psychedelics yeah and sort of massive psychedelic sort <laughs> of derangement um i mean you know and the, when you read it and you sort of think oh you know ian mcculloch has a, a a go at this guy you know he's done so much more yeah. with with his life yeah. and his intellect and his interests that i'm afraid you know i mac ever did so um loved that uh, uh, so just just interject i i i'm very fond of julian cope i i i, I think that you know he's a genuine english eccentric of a, of a certain sort um and he's actually a ser- you know quite a serious man in an unserious sort of way his kraut rock book was, was very good he's a brilliant writer on music yeah. and I mean I, I, we have I have tried to get Cope's work on Rock's Back Pages <laughs> to no avail probably because I slagged off his first solo album and I've never been forgiven that'll do it yeah I'm afraid I know I've never been forgiven um, so I, it's a great shame because I loved Krautrock Sampler and Jap Rock Sampler I mean he's uh, Faber put out this enormous book called The Copendium about three or four years ago. It's enormous black hardback. It's like a Bible. Yeah. And it's just it's just an assortment of extraordinary pieces that Cope's written on very obscure kraut rock and 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 sort of you know weird outsider yeah. acts. It's yeah. just phenomenal. Yeah. Um you know, it's it, in places as good as sort of, you know. Lester Bang's stream of consciousness prose. So that's what we have for you on Rocks Back Pages this week. Um, I've been Barney Hoskins. And I, I still am Mark Pringle. There you go. And um, so we're going to love you and leave you with some more Etta James speaking with Cliff White. Cliff White, although the initial question is asked by someone else who's in the room, and it's about royalties, royalties in the R&B business and the Royalties or the lack thereof. <laughs> so this is a familiar story, but let's uh, have Essa tell it. Yeah. Thank you and good night. In the what, the early, late 50s? Yeah, the, the royalties. You were playing, was it the royalties? 2%. And I never got that. I never got that. I got paid, I got paid one, one royalty check the whole time that I was with Chess Records. $10,000 one time. 
and that's what I've bought my home with that ten thousand dollars. That's the only thing that I got out of all of those records that were on Chess Records. I never got any royalties from a modern period. You know, they didn't pay any royalties. Royalties? What is that? You know, uh, the the only thing. I, roll with me, Henry. Um, they have a law in the state of California that when you're a minor, all your money goes to the courts and then they give them to you as you need them. You come with your legal guardian with the record company and your lawyer. If you need a new car to travel in or something, the judge sits there and, you know, what do you need it for? Well, let's see, if you need 2000 okay, I'll give you 1500 you know, one of those deals. And... Uh, Roll with me. Only reason I got any money off of Dance with Me, Henry, is because, as a writer and as an artist, is because that it went to court, and it was in the trust fund. So I, I must have got about fourteen thousand dollars. That was nothing. That was an excerpt from Etta James in conversation with Cliff White, concluding this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast. The presenters were Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and the producer was Jasper Murison Bowie. You can find all the articles featured on the show, and thousands more, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews at rocksbackpages.com. Yeah.